0: Good evening, Mercy View. I'm Jayma Raubach. I'm a partner here. Our scripture reading tonight is Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, JMA. Well, good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. It is uh, great to have you here tonight. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here, and uh, especially if you're visiting with us tonight, if this is your first time um, with us, we're so glad that you're here, and... um, Yeah, we're just honored you'd hang out with us and worship with us uh, tonight. Uh, You're probably familiar um, with this scene. I don't see it a whole lot in modern uh, television shows or movies, but there was a time in cartoons, really, I think is where I saw this the most, where you've probably seen this scene. Someone is confronted with a difficult decision, and um, all of a sudden, on one shoulder... Uh, an angel appears, right? And then on the other shoulder, what appears? A, a devil or a demon, right? Of some kind. And uh, that demon looks evil. It's holding a pitchfork and it's red. And the angel looks, you know, angelic. It is an angel, right? And it's, it's uh, floating. It's got a halo. And um, those things represent something, right? The angel represents a person's conscience, typically, and the the devil represents the, the person's temptation. And here's how it always goes. The angel attempts to get the person to do what is right, and the devil attempts to get the person to do what is wrong. Now, the reason why that picture resonates so deeply with us is because many of us would describe that same kind of feeling when we're faced with a difficult decision in front of us. Like we're, we're trying to figure out what to do in a particular situation and we seem to be battling the, the good and the bad or the, the good and the evil in us. And it's hard sometimes to decide what is right and what is wrong. So I wonder if you can answer that question. like How do you decide when something is right and when something is wrong. I mean there are things if you're here tonight and you're a a Christian, someone who follows Christ you should have things that are non-negotiables right? Things like the deity of Christ, things like the humanity of Christ, things like justification by faith or the authority and sufficiency of scripture. I'm not really talking about those kinds of things I'm really talking about things that aren't as clear in the Bible. Things that aren't as black and white when you go to the scriptures. And with those things, as we hit those things, how are we to relate to one another in a place like the local church when I may differ with you on what I think about that? And you may have an opinion on that that issue that's very different than mine. What happens when we disagree Like in the end, is there something that is more important than even our opinions and our preferences? Tonight, we are jumping back into a series that uh, we began a a bit of our time back. In fact, we're really um, now in the second part of our study of the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, you really see two sections. The first half of Romans through uh, chapter 11 is Paul, the Apostle Paul, attempting to give us a high view of God and also a very real picture of us. It's rich with theology, it's rich with doctrine, and really we see Paul press this theme of justification by faith. God has made us right with God himself through the work and person of Jesus. But then, as we transition into the second half of the book of Romans, which begins in Romans chapter 12, what we really see Paul doing is taking those realities, those truths, those doctrines, and saying, This is what it looks like to live theology out loud. This is how you take this doctrine and apply it to your life. In other words, he's trying to help us see that there are, there are, Things that, yes, we may know about God, but until they are acted on, until there's activity that is motivated by those things, we're not really living as Christians. And so, one way you could say it is in the first half of the book of Romans, Paul is showing us how theology is known, but in the second half of the book of Romans, he's showing us how that theology that is known should lead to a theology lived. And today, we're actually beginning uh, a few weeks that's going to center on the same kinds of, of ideas that um, really take a deep dive into what we just asked the question on, and it is this. How do we deal with a diversity of opinion on less biblically clear issues, particularly within a local church? And as we look at that issue tonight, I really just want to invite you to see one big thing, and it's this. The law of liberty frees us to accept one another despite our differences. Let just say that again. The law of liberty frees us up to accept one another despite our differences. So if you would keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 14, beginning there in verse 1. And as we move into a new chapter tonight let me just give you a little bit of a heads up of what what Paul is is doing here. Paul is is continuing to address issues things, concerns that he has as he has received reports about a church that he has helped started. He, he planted helped plant the Roman church and he is writing a letter that's what this this book is it's a letter written back to the Roman church to say, hey guys, Again, remember what we just said, here's who God is, here's who you are, but let's let's take those truths and those realities and let's talk then about what it means to live those realities out in our life. And apparently, Paul is getting word that there is some fighting or bickering that is happening over issues that Paul would likely call open-handed issues issues that there should be freedom of thought and opinion and preference on. There, there should be no requirement for someone to only believe this one thing. But the people in the Roman church were apparently taking open-handed issues and saying, no, they are closed-handed issues. Here is what you have to believe. Here is how you have to practice this particular thing. And in our chapter here that we started tonight in, in Romans 14, you heard Jema read some of this apparently their debates were over some things that you and I might go like, man, that's some weird stuff to be like debating. But here's what it was. They were debating um, on restrictions of certain kinds of food and wine. We're actually gonna see that a little bit more when we look at the second half of of Romans 14. But also the honoring or esteeming of certain days of the week. And in particular, um, the, the, the Roman church were struggling, in particular the Jewish Christians in the Roman church, were struggling with what do we do with the Sabbath, right? So that's really what that has to do with. Now, it's understandable how these Jewish Christians would have come to these ideas, these more restrictive ideas about food and wine, these more uh, maybe even restrictive, we could say, ideas about what to do on the Sabbath. If you know anything about the city of Rome at this time, it was filled with temples, and almost everyone there, outside of the Christians who lived there, would have been an idol worshiper. And the Jewish Christians themselves would have been former, former idol worshippers. And so the meat that was being sold at the market was typically the kind of thing that would have been presented to an idol for that idol's blessing, or it had been actually offered to an idol. And so the Roman Christians, especially the Jewish ones, felt that that kind of meat would have been ruined because it was offered to an idol. And to then buy it or to eat it was to actually themselves participate in idol worship, and they could not bring themselves to do that. So to avoid all of that, they wouldn't buy meat in the market. And they would eat vegetables. They were vegetarians. Yes, yeah, what it said in the, in the beginning of Romans 14. So to, so you can get a sense here, understanding the, the Jewish background, why they would have approached these things this way. We just talked about the, the Sabbath day. They these Jewish Christians would have likely esteemed the Sabbath as a day that you don't do any work on. That's that was the traditional thinking about what you how you approach a Sabbath on that day. Now, as Paul gets into Romans 14, though, we need to just ask this question one more time, why was this so important for Paul to put it in a letter to his friends in the Roman church? I want you to remember something. Back in Romans 12, verse 15, Paul says this. He says, live in harmony with one another. And then later in verse 18 of of Romans 12, he says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. So again, Paul had apparently gotten wind of these disagreements that were happening among the Roman Christians. And he believed because it was working against harmony and it was working against peace, he needed to say something to his friends. Actually down in verses 15 and 16 that we didn't read, but we'll get to soon. You'll notice that that Paul says that If these kinds of opinions and preferences about non-essential things aren't put in their proper place and he uses this word he says it actually destroys something and what he what he's talking about is it destroys relationships and then that can be a, a cancerous thing in the life of a faith community and ultimately this kind of disagreeing can lead to destroying a church a local church so Paul is really concerned about that possibility, as he should be, as we should be. And so he is so serious about that that he is actually going to spend a chapter and a half on this issue. All of chapter 14 and the beginning of of chapter 15. Actually, chapter 12 of, of Romans, we just heard, he's talking really about the same kind of thing. This is something that's very serious to Paul. And I just want to say something... Um, Just as an aside here, I actually can't think of a more relevant issue to talk about as a church than what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14 tonight, and and we'll see in Romans 15. Let's just be honest, opinions and preferences and positions on all kinds of issues have turned into reasons within the local church to judge other Christians, and to look down upon them, to impugn their motives, to disfellowship even with one another. I've seen it firsthand over the past few years and it's, it's not just around the issues that, that we walk through with the pandemic. I've seen it on issues of race or, or politics or how to use social media, just to name a few. And it, it is fracturing relationships. It is harming the church. So we would do well tonight, brothers and sisters, to listen to Paul's words to his friends in the Roman church because they are his words to us as well. They are God's words to us tonight. So back to our passage this evening. As we ease into Romans 14 this evening, I want you to notice one thing that Paul is doing really from the very beginning. Paul is primarily going to be speaking to what he calls the weaker brother. And when Paul uh, and and many of the writers in the Bible use that term brother, it's meant to include brothers and sisters. It's both men and women. And so um, he's primarily in the first part of Romans 14 speaking to what he would call the weak one. So who was the weaker brother or sister? Who is Paul talking about? Well, the weaker one was likely a Jewish Christian who chose, because of their conviction, to stay away from things like certain kinds of food and drink or or to to treat a day a certain way out of either loyalty to the law or uh, to to obey the spirit of the law. And those things would find themselves, though, in the realm of what we would call a non-essential. Now, a couple things about that. Down in verse 23, which again, we didn't look at earlier, read earlier, but Paul says this, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So don't miss this. Paul is not calling the practice of the weak sinful. He is just saying that they are driven by a certain kind of faith that just so happens to be a weak faith. Another thing to notice here is that Paul is not calling the weaker Christians legalists, which is a fancy word to mean that um, you you believe that uh, in order for God to love you and to accept you and to forgive you, you have to obey the law. Like your obedience precedes his forgiveness. Paul is not saying that in some way the Jewish Christians that are maybe more restrictive in their practice were somehow obeying the law or or, or being loyal to the spirit of the law in order to get God's favor. Paul is not talking about these Christians like he talks about what happens with Peter and and other uh, Judaizers in Galatians 5. If you remember that story, Paul was so bothered with Peter and these men who were separating themselves from the Gentiles, he gets in Peter's face in public. It was that serious to Paul because Paul did not want anything to get in the way of what, what we would call the, the pure and un, uh, adulterated gospel. Um, when you start to add things to the work of Jesus, it no longer is the gospel anymore. And, and Paul was so passionate about it, he, he said, hey, Hey, what you're doing here is sending the message that there is something that you have to do in addition to just receiving the free gift of grace. In other words, his friends and Peter, Peter and his buddies were twisting the gospel in a way that actually voided the gospel. In our passage today, Paul is not criticizing the weak ones because he knows that they do not think that their abstinence earns God's acceptance or somehow contributes to their justification. In other words, Paul is saying, guys, this is not a gospel issue. So don't make it that. So it is important, I think, to say those two things first because when we talk about the weak brother or sister, we tend to see that primarily in a negative light, right? Weak or weakness has is, is got a negative connotation. And so, I mean, it's, it's natural for us to think that way. We tend to see the, the idea of, of even when we put that word in front of a weak brother or, or sister uh, in the same way. And, but what Paul is doing is, is this. He's merely saying that these brothers and sisters are exercising their faith in a way that sees obedience to God's law as more restrictive than others. He is saying that there is something connected to that faith that still needs to grow and still needs to mature. In short, the brother who is weak, the sister who is weak, is having a difficult time processing how obedience works through a gospel lens. Or maybe we could say it this way. They are having difficulty to to figure out how obedience with the new freedoms that they have in the gospel are meant to be lived out. Does that make sense? All right, so there is maturing that needs to happen. There is growth that needs to happen, but, but, but Paul is saying don't necessarily look down upon a weaker brother or sister. But here is what Paul is also doing. He's not just talking to those that may be stronger brothers or sisters. He's also really, he's really talking to the weaker brother or sister in our passage tonight. Because what he's saying is, what what could be the result, if you find yourself in that more restrictive camp, you very easily could be tempted to treat the stronger brother or sister as as spiritually careless, spiritually unwise, or maybe even worldly. Why? Because if you believe that what you're doing, because it's it's more limiting, more restrictive, you're going to look down on someone else who might have more freedom to do that very thing and consider yourself to be superior to them, right? Or, or more spiritual than them because of your more limiting lifestyle. So in talking to the weaker brother or sister in our passage tonight, Paul is communicating something that is very important to us that he believes contributes to harmony or unity in the church or takes away from it. This really brings us back to the one big thing that I want you to see this evening. Let me just say that again. The law of liberty should free us to accept one another despite our differences. See, the the, the thing is, guys, that like everything in Christianity, if you make it a first order issue, there's no other places to put some of these other things. Um, the longer that you're in the church, the more likely you are to start to like your opinions a lot. And, and, and everything that you come to believe that, that you believe this is how things should be, um, you then not only believe it for yourself, you think, you know what, everybody else needs to live this way too. Everyone else needs to have the same opinion that that I do because that's just the way things are, Brad. But here's what Paul is trying to say to us tonight. There are many things in the Christian life that God has not spelled out what he wants for us. What, What God many times does in his scriptures is gives us principles that we are then to take and then and connect it to wisdom, right, in our life, and and that's what we then apply to the situations we find ourselves in. Maturity is having the wisdom to know what the right thing is to do, even when it's not spelled out real clearly in the Bible. It's not just developing strong convictions, which Paul is actually going to advocate here for just in just a moment. You should have strong convictions, but he is going to say it, it's. It's something more than just developing that. It's also learning to show restraint in the weight you give to those convictions. It's getting truth in the right order of importance. So how does Paul give us wisdom on that tonight? Well, I think Paul has in mind this. He has in mind something we're going to take some some time over the next uh, few weeks to look at, the strengthening of and the maturing of something called our conscience. Now we're gonna, again, spend some time looking at this uh, because it's uh, one of those things that's under uh, misunderstood. I think it's under applied in, in the church. So we would do well to, to, to get our, our, our hearts around this. Also, because of what we said earlier, this is something that I have a sense in the church um, is, is really harming the, the, the big C church. Um, If we can't figure this out, we're going to have a hard time, friends, moving forward even here at Mercy View. Well, what is it? What is the conscience? Well, let's define it this week. What is the conscience? The conscience is a gift of God that is really a type of intuition where you know something maybe before you can even articulate it. Or maybe we could say it this way. It's something that before your head knows it, your heart feels it. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 5. If you look there, as Paul is talking about observing and esteeming one day over another, he says something really interesting to me. He says, look there, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's another way of saying that on non-essentials, your convictions are likely informed by your conscience. Now, there is a misconception about what Paul is doing here when he says that you should be fully convinced of of this thing in your own mind. Like, a lot of people think Paul could have made this a lot easier for us if he would have just said, hey, look, on the secondary issues, on the non-essentials, don't have strong convictions, right? He, He could have said that, but instead he says, We should come to clear convictions on our part um, on a variety of levels of of, of importance. And the critique against Paul is like, Paul, doesn't that make this worse? If I have a strong opinion about something and you have a strong opinion about something, how is that helping and moving us toward unity and harmony? Paul is, is, I think, saying this. True harmony comes... When two people with differing, but strong convictions on a secondary issue, strive to listen to one another, to understand one another, and after clarifying their disagreement, they realize in humility, we can still hang out. We can still love one another. We can still be in fellowship one another with one another. Paul is saying, that's the win. Not a wishy-washy truce but a loving disagreement that doesn't require a break in relationship. But second, when Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, it also means, because this is the temptation of the weaker brother or sister, we should not require others to believe or practice things in the same way we do if they fall into the realm of non-essentials. Now, we... We, again, I'm going to say this again. We need to recover this as a church and as Christians. If we do that, we have the spirit of the weaker brother or sister, or we straight up are the weaker brother or sister, because we are prescribing for others what falls outside of a moral category. To be convinced in your own mind does not mean that you are to necessarily even convince, that is, change the mind of another person if they hold to a different conviction. That is what it means to bind a conscience. Now, all of this begs the question, how do we determine all of that? How do we determine what a non-essential is or what an essential is? And uh, a few weeks ago, we actually, um, I think it was when we were in Romans 12, we talked about this issue of unity and uh, we said this, we said when, when Paul or when really any of the writers of, in the New Testament in particular write about the issue of unity, they are not talking about uniformity. They are talking about something that, that you and I would maybe call in another way harmony, not homogeny. And unity and harmony are the fruit, I think this is Paul's point, of what we just said, of yes, you being convinced in your own mind, not some sort of wishy-washy or or not like any sort of belief of any kind and humbly deciding to not make it a litmus test for relationship or somehow some um, sort of like requirement for fellowship with someone else. And for the sake of our discussion tonight, here's how we said it a few weeks ago. Um, in order for us To differentiate between moral principles that are clear in the Bible and those other things that are less clear, we have to make sure we're putting issues in the right category. And in light of our conversation tonight, the results will be a stronger and mature conscience that leads to greater unity and harmony in the Bible. Here's what we said those those categories were a few weeks ago. There are three uh, the first category is what we would call first order issues. These are issues that we would say um, uh, you are permitted to, to do. You, you may do them. And that, the second um, tier would be second order issues. These are uh, things that you might should do or should not do. Or, or we could just say like maybe it's advisable to do or not do. And then the third order uh, would be, issues would be things that are mandatory. These are things that the Bible says you must do. Um, So let's talk about those. The first order issues um, are issues that uh, you would come to and say, you know, the Bible doesn't explicitly address this issue. Requires a number of steps in moving from biblical text to ethical conclusions. You can't resolve the issue by just quoting some scripture, but um, they are things that aren't necessarily though mandatory. Second order are like things that again, should, you maybe should do, maybe should should not do. Uh, these are, are, are things that um, really we would say are, are non-essentials. These are things that Christians can respect, respectfully disagree on and still be in fellowship uh, together on. But, but for things that are clear in the Bible, they, that, those are moral musts, and, and there is no fancy moral reasoning that is necessary. So, you can probably feel the challenge here because the process requires conversation, requires patience and maturity and forbearance even. See, with any issue in particular that is not explicitly commanded in the Bible, it's figuring out where to put it. Where to put it in your life, where it should sit in the life of the church. For example, putting one issue in another tier will confuse and conflate that issue, right? In other words, you can conflate a moral issue with what's really just an ethical issue where there's a ton of freedom on it. And what you can in turn do is place a new law on people. It binds a conscience, it simplifies something that maybe is much more complex. So we have to ask that question, where does this sit in my heart? Where does this need to sit in the life of the church? So one of Paul's encouragements and challenges uh, to us tonight in this first part of Romans 14 is we need to grow in our awareness of our tendency to be the weaker brother or sister. Now, some of you, you're gonna find that you struggle more with being the stronger There's there's struggles with being the stronger brother or sister too. But if we're not careful, we can all to uh, also have this tendency to be the weaker brother or sister. Listen, I, I get it. Believe me. We all, I have strong opinions about a lot of stuff. I know you do too. Some of you have shared your opinions with me. That's awesome. That is the nature of humanity. We want to know why we do what we do. And once we think we have it figured out for some reason, again, this is the negative side of this, we because we think too highly of ourselves, we assume others need to believe and practice the same thing. We turn something that is permissible or even maybe advisable into something that is mandatory for someone else. Friends, that destroys unity. That in no way provokes harmony among God's people. Again, it is okay to have an opinion on something, it is okay to share that opinion that you might have, but what you do with that opinion is what matters. What is your motive? Here is what I find in my own heart, the ugliness of my own heart is happening when I struggle with the weaker brother or sister stuff. I don't really want to um, love my brother or sister, like get them to believe what I believe. Like it's not being motivated by love, it's being motivated by control. And I think if we're honest, that is what motivates much of our weaker brother or sister tendencies. Because if people think like us and act like us, surely we're right. Surely we're good. It, it strokes us, it strokes our ego, right? It, it, it makes us feel good about our identity. Friends, that is not the motivation that Paul is encouraging for us tonight. But Paul's other point really tonight is this, obey your conscience. Don't do something unless you're fully convinced. We said earlier that the conscience is a gift from God. We should never go against our conscience. The Bible actually says that you and I can over time numb our conscience. But listen, we should all be open to having our conscience reformed. Even though your conscience is a precious gift from God, that doesn't mean it can't be wrong. And it can become better informed. Sometimes you have to challenge and reform it according to the truth. And are are you humble, this is the question, are you humble enough to learn from another Christian that you may not see something the right way? What kind of church would this be if our partners and those that are a part of our church are willing to listen to one another and change their minds? listen, I've changed my mind a lot in the in the last whatever 12 or 13 years since planting this I would say I've been I'll be married 24 years this year I've changed my mind a lot because I'm married in those years now, those changes of mind for the most, I don't think any of them have anything to do with the essentials of the faith. But I've learned that my perspective has been shaped many times by my own selfish and sinful prejudices, my own cultural perspectives, not the scriptures, not the working of the spirit in me. But here's the reality. When I did change my mind, I didn't arrive on those things because I was smarter. God gave me that insight as an act of grace. So, one of the ways that we can be patient with one another, that we differ with, is to remember just how patient God has been with us. And we can also remember what Paul says in verse 4. Look back there. He says, It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Friends, we must remember that the person you are tempted to pass judgment on is a servant of Jesus. This means that the Lordship of Christ releases all of us from the need to feel like it is up to us to determine what other people do or don't do. You are not ultimately your Christian's master. God is their master. It is not our job to be the Lord of their conscience or thought police. It's not your job to sort them out in every single thing that you think they may have incorrect. Ultimately, all of this belongs to Jesus because he is Lord. We will stand before Jesus on the judgment day and give an account for our lives. That's what Paul is saying in verses 10 through 12. The final accountability for our actions in our life is an issue for Jesus to settle and for him to determine. He is our master and he is our Lord. You may be here this evening and you would say, Brad, um, my issue really isn't uh, the fact that I disagree with other Christians in my life. I'm I'm not even a believer. (laughs) But you heard what I just said. You say, well, I didn't know that one day that I would stand before God and give an account for my life. There's a good news of the gospel is that, and this is true for all of us, God accepts us despite the mistakes that we might make on non-essential issues. Isn't that good news? Right? That should influence the way that you and I accept one another. And so if you are are here tonight, the good news of uh, that, and you don't know Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that you can be accepted by God in spite of your sin, in spite of your mistakes. He receives you. And that's the same kind of attitude that all Christians, as we interact with one another, should have with each other. Do you realize how many times you've been wrong in your spiritual life, and yet God has never stopped accepting you? Who are we then to reject someone else? How can we not fellowship with someone that God is in fellowship with himself? Are we really saying that our fellowship is more selective than God's? In fact, by not welcoming them, you're implying that God's acceptance of them is misguided somehow. Paul is going to say in the next chapter of Romans, Romans 15, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. the glory of God. Friends, we need to recognize the sincerity of our brothers and sisters in Christ and respect them even if we can't fully go where they go. Can we be that kind of Christian? Can we be that kind of church? Can we do that for Jesus, the one who accepts us unconditionally? I pray That we will be a church where our love of the gospel, our love of Jesus is stronger, way stronger than our perspectives on debatable matters. Let's pray together.